0: You may go ahead and be seated. Thank you so much for being here this morning. If you are a guest with us, we particularly want to welcome you. Thank you for being with us. My name is Aaron Campbell. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeeming Grace Church. Um, If you are a guest with us, uh, we hope that you don't leave before we have the opportunity to give you a gift. We have uh, books out on a bookshelf that we would love just to bless you with this morning Um, to encourage you in your walk with God. And the way you get one of those is we have a welcome card um, that you fill out in exchange for one of those books. So if you didn't get one of those cards, you can get one on your way out uh, after the meeting in the lobby. Um, But it would be our our privilege just to introduce ourselves and and find out any way that we might be able to serve you as you seek to determine whether uh, where God might add you as a member in a local church. Our lead pastor, Matt Rawlings... Continues to recover from COVID this morning. Lord willing, he will be with us next Sunday to resume his series on 1 Corinthians 12. This morning, we are instead beginning um, the series that I'll be in for probably the better part of this year um, 2 Peter. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and open to 2 Peter chapter 1 as I fill in for Matt. Uh, This is the the book that I'll be in. Peter's a familiar name, servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Maybe maybe you've heard of him. His name appears a couple times in the first five books of our New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Of course, Peter is one of the most well-known and one of the most beloved individuals in the New Testament. Not only because numerous accounts include his words and actions, but because oftentimes his words and actions are perhaps a bit too relatable to many of us. He was a fisherman by trade, and he was often less than polished, willing to open his mouth when others could not Or would not, even when what he was expressing many times was that they were probably thinking too. And after Jesus ascended, Peter preached on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 were saved. He then took on a primary leadership role in the early Jerusalem church. He was also the one that the Lord sent to the Gentiles for the first time. Peter preached to Cornelius and his household, and they received the Holy Spirit and began speaking in tongues, having their own little Pentecost. So Peter and the Jewish believers with him concluded that salvation had come to the Gentiles as well and baptized them. Now, being an apostle and being used mightily by God didn't mean there weren't also some missteps some that we're very familiar with. One that we don't have all the details to is one that Paul recounts in Galatians of how he had to oppose Peter to his face. So this wasn't just before the Holy Spirit. This wasn't um, while Jesus was still around and he was constantly st- sticking his foot in his mouth. This was years later and Paul says he had to oppose Peter to his face. After Peter was eating with Gentile believers only until other legalistic Jews showed up and then he distanced himself. And Paul says that he had to confront Peter's hypocrisy. Not only because it was wrong, but because others were also being led astray by it. Peter was mightily used, but he was not a perfect man. He was understandably a... Undeniably a key player in all four Gospels and Acts, but for all of his New Testament prominence, we don't have much actually written by Peter. This letter and the one before it are relatively short epistles. The second letter, this one that we're going to be looking at, doesn't specify who it is written to in a geographic sense, but it's more than likely written to the same churches that he wrote 1 Peter 2, which he identifies as Pontus, Galatia, Asia, Cappadocia, and Bithynia. These were cities in modern-day Turkey where his readers would have been predominantly Gentile in background. It's widely accepted tradition that Peter was martyred in Rome, and this letter is dated near his death. He likely knew his end was near, and so some call this letter Peter's last will and testament. His essential message for the next generation, as he once more sought to strengthen his brothers and feed Christ's sheep. So, would you read with me, Second Peter, chapter one, verses one and two? Simeon Peter, a servant an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. First thing I want us to see this morning is that our standing before God is is outstanding because of Jesus. Peter identifies himself as the author and a servant and apostle of Jesus. Who is he writing to? Well, he says, those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of, God, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Ours seems to be speaking of Peter and other apostles. So when he speaks of our faith, our um, equal standing of ours, um, he's speaking not just of himself, but other apostles. So immediately the question comes up, who qualifies as having obtained a faith equal with Peter and the other apostles? I mean, Perhaps the reason he doesn't list a destination geographically is because he doesn't want to exclude anyone because in Peter's mind, who he's writing to is every believer. That is who truly has obtained a faith of equal standing with Peter and the apostles. Now wait a second. I know for many, that simply doesn't make sense. An equal standing with Peter, one of Jesus' inner circle. Peter, the one who walked on water. The same Peter who gave the good response when Jesus asked, Who do you say I am? He responded, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And and Jesus responded to his good confession declaring that he would build his church. Upon this truth, and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Peter, one of the three disciples, Jesus took with him to the Mount of Transfiguration, who saw Jesus speaking with Moses and Elijah. The same one who ran to the empty tomb that first Sunday after Jesus was crucified. The Peter that spoke on the day of Pentecost, and 3,000 were saved. Spokesperson for the early church, who God used to heal a beggar outside the temple, the same one who was beaten and imprisoned because of his testimony about Jesus, who multiple times had miraculous releases from prison. The one people used to line up cots in the street of the sick in hopes that his shadow would fall upon them, that they might be healed. Clearly that is a different category of human being right a faith of equal standing with Peter the apostle God used to confirm the inclusion of the gentiles in his redemptive plans and perhaps most importantly Peter the man who received a vision from God that it was now okay to eat ham and bacon and shrimp Are we really to believe a brand new Gentile believer of his day? Or any of us in our day have obtained a faith equal to that of Peter and the other apostles? Yes, that is exactly what Peter is saying. Our faith. Your faith has an equal standing with Peter and the other apostles. Take a second to soak in that. Because, you know, we can struggle with doubt over almost anything. Let alone when it comes to questions related to our standing before God. Even those of us who have walked years with Jesus. But Peter, Paul, James, and John, they are different. They are in the pages of this book. They spent years with him. Then they took his message and empowered by his spirit, they turned the world upside down. There's no doubt on the standing of their faith. Now, we might question Peter's wisdom in making a declaration like this, except that his declaration is also in this book. How is that possible? Well, Peter answers that. In the second half of verse 1, where he says, Those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter knows that his standing wasn't based on his own righteousness. And neither is anyone else's. Our faith has an equal standing with the apostles because our faith, like theirs, is in the righteousness of Christ alone. My standing before God is not based on my righteousness. Peter knew his standing before God was not based on Peter's righteousness. Yours is not based on Kathy's or Scott's or John's. It's based on Christ alone. What does he mean by our standing? It means that we are declared right. We are declared righteous in the courtroom of heaven. In theological terms, we are justified before God. Some like to remember what that means by saying it's just as if I'd never sinned. And I like that. I think it's helpful. Except that it doesn't quite go far enough. Because not sinning means you're not guilty. But that's not the same as righteous. Holy. Your your bank account may not be in the negative, but you still can't buy anything if your balance is zero. To accrue positive righteousness, we need to be obedient. We need to be perfect. Not just obedient, but perfect in obedience and good deeds, in word and action, And attitude, which, by the way, is why our righteousness doesn't and never can add to our account. Because we don't have perfect righteousness and good deeds. Now, this is an aspect of Christ's work I think we often overlook. We know All about when he took our sins at Calvary. That he willingly stood in our place and absorbed the punishment of all our sin. As if he said, treat me as if all their sin, all the hatred and anger and lust and selfishness, treat me as if I had done that. All the lying and stealing, abuse and murder, idolatry and adultery, gossip and slander, drunkenness and gluttony. Put it all on my account and treat me as if I had done it all. And God the Father did. Jesus' dread of the cross as he prayed in the garden wasn't just about or even primarily about the physical agonies that awaited him. But the active, concentrated wrath of God he was about to absorb for you and for me. The same wrath that over the course of all eternity will not be exhausted For those that do not receive what Jesus willingly took for us. That part we know. Dealing with our sin was necessary and wonderfully generous. But it's only half of the good news. His taking our sin didn't make us right with God. It made us neutral with God. At least, it would have if that's as far as the great exchange had gone. The other half of the equation is that all of Christ's righteousness, what he accrued through his perfect obedience, his fulfilling of the law, All that he was and did that made his father declare, this is my son, with him I am well pleased. All that he credited to us, to our account. Peter clearly says our standing is by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He took all of our negative from us, and he gave all of his positive to us. So we aren't simply in a position where God won't punish us, because he punished Christ instead, and and that would be double jeopardy. He can't punish the same crime more than once. But he loves and pours out his favor and kindness to you and me, rightfully objects of his wrath. Because it's just as if I'd lived the perfect life that Jesus did. That's why God declares not only not guilty, but righteous, right, holy, perfect, outstanding. And don't miss when this goes into effect. Peter is writing to those who have obtained. It has taken place in the past and remains in effect forever. He's not writing to other apostles here. He's writing to every believer. All who have called upon the name of the Lord. When we are saved, brought from spiritual life to eternal death, brought from spiritual death to eternal life, transferred from the kingdom of darkness to unending light, at that moment, our standing with God because of Christ's righteousness credited to us, it's something that we have already obtained. It's not something we need to do something extra in order to get. There's no six-month waiting period. No minimum purchase required before it kicks in. Paul relays the same thing in Ephesians 2. Verses 4-6 through six when he says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And listen. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Past tense, done deal. Our standing before him right now is that we are already raised and seated with him, declared righteous by the judge of heaven. I realize this is just a two part of the letter, And this is easy to just skim past. But I want to quickly consider just one consequence of our standing. Because I don't want us to miss how radical this really is. Because God's commitment to you, his love for you, is not based on your faulty works or insufficient righteousness, but Christ's perfect righteousness. Because of that, God cannot possibly love you more than he already does. And he will not love you any less. The fullness of God's love is already upon you. That is not a hopefully, someday, maybe proposition. When we are in Christ, it's all ours. He cannot love you more because he cannot love anyone more than how much he loves Christ. Your obedience and good deeds can't make His perfect obedience better. you can't. All your efforts can never surpass what He has already accomplished for you. Instead, we get to enjoy loving and relating with God as those that are completely accepted, completely loved, completely enjoyed because we are in Christ. But I want to be loved for me. No, you don't. Because what you deserve is not love but the wrath He took for us. And what He has chosen to give is so much better. A love that is so far beyond any loveliness in you. The affection He has for Christ Himself. And because of the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, He will not love us any less than He does right now. Because all of our sin and failure and worst moments have already been dealt with. He's already taken care of them. Your current situation, your biggest disappointment right now is something He already knew about and took care of 2,000 years ago. It may be new to you, But he declared, it is finished long ago. He can't love you more and he won't love you less. That's what it means to have right standing with God. That's what it means to be justified by God the reality that we have already obtained in the courtroom of heaven, the eternal verdict of not guilty but righteous because we are in Christ. I know, again, some here might object, hopefully not audibly in this moment, but inevitably, some of us feel the need to object and say, but I don't feel that way. I don't feel right with God. I feel guilty and condemned. I know He loves me. I hear it all the time. There are lots of times when it's hard to believe because I know I'm guilty. When the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, the first thing we should do is confess our sins. Why? Because He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we've done that and feelings of guilt and condemnation persist, allow me to share with you what I sometimes counsel my girls when emotions and particularly feelings of condemnation seem to be running the show. Our feelings are lying liars. And we need to stop listening to them so much. Seriously. The enemy manipulates our emotions against us to keep us feeling distant from God. We need to listen to our emotions less and speak truth that God has declared more. We can't allow our limited, constantly fluctuating self-centered perspective to become greater in our eyes than what God has revealed as eternally true. I think the example of David in the Psalms is is wonderful. Psalm 42.5, I don't have these on the slides, but David says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God! For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Or in Psalm 103, where David says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Just as David speaks to his soul in various psalms, we we need to be directing our souls to a proper view and perspective of God so that our feelings can follow instead of lead. And I think Peter is aware of objections like these when he transitions to his prayer for his readers in verse 2. What we see here is that our outstanding standing doesn't remove the need for more grace and peace now. Verse 2, Peter writes, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our lord. Here's what we see in this prayer is that Jesus or that Peter lived in the same world we do. Peter knew even though our standing before God is already settled and immovably secure that we aren't. We still sin and struggle. We wrestle with our thoughts and doubts. We wonder if He is really real, whether His promises are too good to be true. We live in a broken and hurting world that often leaves us feeling hurt and broken. So hearing about a standing we have already obtained with a God who couldn't possibly love us more than He already does, oftentimes it either doesn't make sense or doesn't seem... All that reassuring. Because if he loves us so much, why is life still so messy? Why does this world disappoint us so? And why can't we seem to get our acts together? Friends, we are constantly wrestling with the incongruence between what is already true and eternally ours. And the not yet, of having not yet received all of that in our present experience, functionally. We've already obtained right standing with God through Christ's righteousness. We are already fully loved and accepted by Him. At the same time, we have not yet been glorified. I hope that's not news to anyone. We are not yet what we will be when He transforms us by His presence. And sin no longer remains. The process in this life of becoming more and more like Him is called sanctification. It's a process of growing and conforming our present selves into what He has already declared us to be. Righteous, holy, like Jesus. It's a process that requires effort. We have to work at becoming more and more like Him. But that work, that effort is fueled by grace and peace with God until He completes it in an instant by giving us resurrection bodies glorified in His presence. Until our experience matches our standing, we don't just need grace and peace. We need grace and peace multiplied. Day by day, we need to experience the benefits of His favor and peace with Him provided for us in Christ. Right now, we see through a mirror dimly. We know things about him, but there's so much we miss. We're so quick to forget, to focus on other things. When we stand before him in glory, there's no way we'll be able to take our eyes off of him. There's nothing that will seem better, more desirable in our eyes. Our view now is obstructed by sin and doubt, struggle and pain. So Peter prays for us. But in his prayer, he also points us to the source. The means of having grace and peace multiplied is through the knowledge of of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, by the time he closes this letter, Paul's prayer for peace and grace will be matched by a command to grow in grace and knowing Christ. I want to put that up there real quick. 2 Peter 3.18. Listen to how similar this sounds. The beginning of the book, now to the end. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Knowing Him more is clearly important to Peter. He begins and ends the book with it, and we're going to find it regularly throughout our study. Our standing is secure, but our current experience could use some help. So he relays that the way to grow in grace and peace is to better know. To become closer to the source of grace and peace. To know God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because the better we know him, the better we know the reality of what he has done for us in Jesus, the better we know the benefits he has secured for now and for our eternal inheritance that he is sharing for us and preparing for us. The better we know the aspects of his character and nature that make those things not wishful thinking, but our certain future. The better we know God is our Father, who Jesus said he came to reveal to us. The better we know the nature and extent of Jesus saving and redeeming The more we grow in yielding ourselves to him as our Lord, the more grace and peace will overflow into our lives and affect the here and now. Our standing before him is already secure because of him. So Peter prays and exhorts us to grow in enjoying the privilege and benefits of knowing Him and being loved by Him multiplied in our lives. Before we wrap up our introduction to 2 Peter, I want us to consider the author one more time. The same Peter who stuck his foot in his mouth over and over again, being told to be quiet by God the Father at the transfiguration. Denying Jesus three times the same night he swore he would never do it, even if it meant his death. Being told by God the Son, get behind me, Satan. Telling the Son, you'll never wash my feet. There are many examples of a flawed Peter. That Peter got a book deal. In it, he introduced himself as Simeon Peter. Simeon was the Greek transliteration of his given Hebrew name. And Peter, of course, was the name Jesus gave his disciple, meaning rock. In his previous letter, 1 Peter, he only refers to himself as Peter. But here it seems there's a more purposeful addition. A bringing together the man he was born... And the one he became because of Jesus, a before and after sort of hint, even in the introduction of his name. Peter wasn't the same guy he was 30 years earlier, and isn't that encouraging as a reminder for all of us? That We are not defined by our greatest sins, glaring weaknesses, or our most embarrassing moments. Don't you find it refreshing in a culture where someone can get canceled for something they said or did even decades ago? That isn't how God operates. Or the basis that determines who he can use. Peter would have been canceled long ago, as would have Paul, Moses, David. Except this book isn't about those men, but the redeeming God who uses redeemed people. Not perfect people. That's why they need to be redeemed. That's why they're also the perfect ones to speak to other redeemed people and people that need to be redeemed. Peter knew what it was like to fail, what it was like to fall. Even when vowing that though everyone else might fall away, he would not. And on that particular night, when Jesus told him he would indeed fall away, not once, but three times before the cock crowed, he also told Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. He might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, Strengthen your brothers. At the end of his life, the fruit of Jesus' prayer was that Peter's faith still had not failed. And he remained intent on fulfilling his Lord's command. This letter is from a disciple who fell but finished well. Giving us a life and lessons we can learn from about the good news of what it is to be Rescued by Christ. Peter exhorts readers that have never shared a meal with Jesus or watched him perform a miracle in person. He exhorts them that growing in their knowledge of Jesus is the way to experience the multiplying of grace and peace in one's life. And I'm convinced he could do that because 30 years on from Jesus' ascension, Peter knew what his standing was based on. Not his declarations or intentions, but on Christ's accomplishments. He was still walking with Jesus, growing in appreciation for his redemption. And so he wrote as a changed man who knew Jesus better now than he ever had. may grace and peace be multiplied to us in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord so our testimonies might greatly glorify the same savior would he help us to do this if the band would come let's pray lord we